0: You find depictions of bulls related to shrines or you find bones from feasts. And if you think about it in a functionalist term, bulls are the ones that make possible your wealth because, you know, you have cows, you have bulls, you get more cows. Bull is a symbol for a strong man. So it's one of the animals that turns up in the literature as potentially magical quite a bit.
1: Book Society. Hi, welcome. My guest today is Dr. Lisa Battelle. She is the Dean's Professor of Religion and Professor of Religion and History at the University of Southern California, a very, very good school right here in Los Angeles. She has a PhD from Harvard in history. She knows Latin and Old Irish. She has published papers on sex, dreams, architecture, and saints, and probably other things as well. Her most recent book, The Lady of the Rock, Visions and Faith in the California Desert from 2015, She's a fellow of the Medieval Academy of America since 2016, which I'm guessing is the most delightful collection of nerds on Earth.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Most of them have beards. I do not. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so the book that Dr. Patel chose is The Tyne. It is an Irish tale. It's known as the Irish Iliad. I'll confess, I don't know how much of this I understood. I don't know how much I understand. <laughs> Probably more than me. We'll pretend that I'm like an undergrad and I'm going to tell you what I think is the basic plot arc of this. And then that will also help all the listeners be oriented in the discussion, because we're going to be saying a lot of names and a lot of places and referring to a lot of things that if you don't know the basic story of this, aren't going to make any sense.
0: Okay, I have to say that's not like an undergraduate
1: because you have read the text. Oh, (laughs) I did go to music school, so you can't bullshit your way through music school. As silly as it sounds, you either can play it or you can't. You don't have to practice, but everybody knows if they don't. Also, we agreed via email that I am going to just fearlessly mispronounce stuff and be corrected. Because the pronunciations are basically impossible. Some of them I will have right. Some of them I will not have right. So, the Tane, the Irish Iliad. How does it go? It is soon told. So it begins with Pillow Talk, the chapter in the book that I read is called Pillow Talk, and Queen Maeve, which is spelled M-E-D-B, for those of you who are wondering. So Queen Maeve and King Alil who are comparing their fortunes, and they find them to be identical, except for the king's best bull, which actually belonged to Maeve's herd, but wandered over to his because he didn't want to be ruled by a woman, because that's (laughs) the kind of bull he is. So say it again is the only difference between Maeve and Alil's fortunes. And he's this really, really awesome bull. So what does Maeve do? Naturally, instead of just working this out like a married couple often does, what Maeve does is rent the best bull from the next town over, which is Ulster in this case. And they have this really awesome bull named... uh, Don Quallina. So we're going to go over there. We're going to go over to Ulster. We're going to talk to the guy. We're going to send a messenger. We're going to rent the bull. Glorious terms for him. And then we're going to bring it back here. And then I will have a cool bull. You will have a cool bull. And we can be equal again. The messenger goes over to rent the bull. The deal is made. Everybody's happy. And then, of course, the messenger gets drunk and starts sort of boasting that, you know, if you hadn't agreed to rent us this bull, we would have just come here and taken it by force. The hosts are mad and war breaks out with a capital W. May's army enters Ulster and finds a spansel hoop, which the doctor will explain to us what that is in a moment. But it's some kind of medieval challenge ritual thing. The spansel hoop is from the hero of the story, who I guess is really kind of the protagonist named... He is like some superhero Hercules, Achilles type character who proceeds to indiscriminately murder Maeve's men when they are sent against him. First, he kills them by the dozens and then the hundreds, and then they get into this whole single combat situation. And Kukulin is the champion of King Conchobar, who is the king of Ulster. I think I have this right. And all the Ulstermen are sick with some mysterious disease, so they can't come out to fight him. But all you need is Kukulin, because he's this big monster fighting dude. And then he eventually fights Fergus, who is one of Mave's champions. And Fergus convinces him to give up in this single combat and says, the next time we meet, I will give up. Kukulin does give up, but the next time he meets Fergus is in the final battle. Kukulin says to Fergus, well, you promised on your honor to give up, so now you need to give up. And so he does, and Maeve's forces lose, yet somehow Kukulin gets sentimental or something and decides to help her retreat. She does, in fact, leave Ulster with the bull, introduces him to his new friend. These big bulls meet each other, Don Coulang kills Finnebock and then drops his gore and blood all over Ireland, thus giving names to many places in Ireland. So that is the Tane in a nutshell, more or less. How do I do as an undergrad?
0: Close. Yeah, pretty close. I give you a B plus for that reading.
1: Okay, thank you. I'll take it.
0: (laughs) It's a strangely structured tale, right? There are all these, what they call revschkele, these pre-tales, these backstories that help explain what seems like really peculiar actions of the hero and Maven Alil and so forth. And so in some ways, the story is just a sort of great big shaggy bag
1: full of other stories. It's the place that connects the heritage of Ireland. This one was really challenging for that reason that I felt like I was really disoriented culturally.
0: It's strange. It's strange. I mean, In the 19th century, the Irish were all excited about this because they're the northwestern peninsula of Europe. Their culture grew up pure and untouched by Romans or Anglo-Saxons or Napoleon or anything like that. And so when the nationalism rose, they looked all the time back at this text, their great national epic, and at their culture, which was completely different from anyone else's, At least anyone else's that still existed, because there used to be Celts who had a similar culture in Britain and Wales and Scotland, Brittany, all over the place. So, yeah, when you read these stories and they're set in the Iron Age and they're supposed to be a sort of history of the Iron Age, but they were written in the Middle Ages by Christian monks, because those are the only guys who could write, who had books, who had ink. And then they were rewritten, rewritten, passed down, written again, and added to and taken from. So not only are you confused by the original interactions of people from an ancient culture, you're also confused by all the other stuff that people threw at this tale. And whether you could ever get back to the sort of err tale about a cattle rustle, who the heck knows, you know? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I guess this is really just the story of a cattle rustle, isn't it?
0: Yeah, well, that's the name of it. And these early Irish in like the 7th century up to about the 10th century, there were these categories of stories. So like if you were a writer of tales, you would write a cattle rustle, a time. You might write a destruction tale, like an Oregon. You might write an elopement tale, a wooing and elopement tale, a togvarg. And they had certain rules, genre rules for each one. And this one sort of defies all the rules because it's not just about a cattle rustle, is it?
1: I think the reason they call it the Irish Iliad is that the Iliad is sort of the same story. It starts with something stupid, powerful people saying something stupid to each other, and then it turns into a 10-year-long war.
0: And many, many people die. And this one takes that Celtic twist. This one starts, as you said, when Alil and Maeve are just lying around in bed talking about how rich they are. In Ireland, that basically meant how many cows and slaves you had, Maeve discovers she's one bull short. For a woman, first of all, to have that much property and wealth, to argue about it with her husband, to be in a place that she's so powerful, she could say, well, fuck this for a lark. I'm going to be as rich as you are. I'm going to go get that bull one way or another. You already know something amazing is up. And then when you hear that the bull's in Ulster and they're stealing it from Ulster, uh uh-oh, we all know that's where... Cahullan, the whiz kid warrior lives, this is going to be a big problem. You know what you're set up for. It's going to be a grand tale of lots of bludgeon.
1: So Cahullan, the whiz kid warrior, he is seven in this book. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, that is something that really blows the minds of students when I teach this text. Actually kind of blows my mind too. And I try to get my mind around it. Like, what were they thinking? Because he's not the only one who's described that way. And I think it just meant, He became a man really quick, like he could do everything fabulously. So he grew up by the age of seven.
1: Yeah, there was this whole scene. One of the books was about a druid. He asked a druid, what day is it? He said, well, it's a good day. If you put on armor for the first time and go into combat for the first time, you will be victorious and they'll sing songs about you. So the seven year old Colin says, great, let me do that. And then he goes and kills a bunch of people.
0: Yeah. And then the druid adds the footnote about, well, oh, by the way, you're going to die young." Kohola doesn't mind that.
1: So who are the Druids?
0: Oh, I love the Druids. So who knows? All we have of them is what people wrote later, and the people writing later were Christians who really didn't approve of Druids. And the place we get the most information about them is these stories from Ireland, written at most a couple centuries after there probably weren't any Druids hanging around. So they seem to have been religious leaders, prophets, historians, Maybe they were the storytellers as well. They were wise men. And in the stories, they can see the future. They can read omens. They can sometimes mess with the weather. I love that part. Make it snow or something like that. And they're advisors to kings. That's the most important part. So every king in the literature would have at least one druid hanging around to help him figure out what to do next.
1: Wow. So that's cool. So they were kind of like shamans, maybe?
0: Yeah, I think so. People want to see them as part of a religion that they can recognize, you know, as sacrifices and gods and stuff. And we have no information about that whatsoever. Not even archaeology. They've been digging up some <laughs> wooden poles carved with faces recently, getting them out of the bogs. Archaeologists have been finding these things. There's some speculation they had to do with whatever religion was going on in Ireland during the time when the toin was supposed to take place. So maybe Druids were hanging out with wooden poles. We don't know. But none of those poles says, I belong to Kathwad the Druid or anything like that. So,
1: Can you talk a little bit about the archaeology in the bogs and the bog people and all that?
0: Oh yeah. I love the bog people. If you go in the National Museum in Ireland, where they have all that amazing gold um, that kings got to wear around their neck and arms and so forth, they also now have some bodies pulled out of bogs because the bogs have this marvelous property of, preserving stuff. Famously, people find uh, tubs of butter in there from like 1800 or 1600 and it's still butter. So they find bodies as well, preserved very well with hair and fingernails sometimes. But the ones they have in the museum that they've found were pretty clearly sacrifices or the ritual victims of battle. So oftentimes a couple of them have been killed more than one way, strangled, Stab tossed into the bog, or something like that. And the ones they have in the museum are youngish men who seem not to have done a lot of manual labor. So maybe princes leading armies or contenders for the kingship. They must have chucked them in there either to scare people, their enemies, or to satisfy some protector god or goddess, something like that. But you know, again, they didn't come with written instructions, so we're not sure.
1: The IRA used the bogs a little bit too, didn't they?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can hide anything in there. You know, it wasn't just the Irish. I mean, there's a famous bog man they found in England and the laws from the Burgundians or some barbarian tribe from the Germanic territories. That's what they did with women they caught in adultery. They would strangle them and toss them in a bog. Bogs are useful for all sorts of stuff.
1: In one of the pre-stories that have a name that I can't pronounce, but what is it?
0: Ravskerl. Red is before scale is
1: a tale. The before tales. So he goes to this woman, the lady who teaches him how to fight. Oh, Scott, the shadowy one. Two things. First of all, who is she? And then my second question. This is totally a different question, but you mentioned someone going to Rome. So they were like aware of Rome, right?
0: Oh yeah, yeah yeah. Okay, here we get into. We got to put your questions aside and talk about the language now. The twin we have today is just layers and layers of people rewriting something that was probably told orally in bits and pieces. You know, they have a long, dark winter in Ireland. So you tell stories at night to pass the time and you couldn't tell much of this in one night. So the idea is that people were telling stories about this coin, about Queen Maeve, about Cahollum. And eventually somebody in a monastery somewhere said, we better write this stuff down. This is our history, our heritage. Which is pretty cool in itself. Nobody else did that in Europe anywhere. From that, you would get all these pretails and you would get things that don't quite make sense because somebody jammed a couple of tales together or tried to smooth it over, wrote it in his own way, whatever. But those guys were churchmen. They knew what Rome was. People went on pilgrimage to Rome and came back. So yeah, and remember, in their minds, they were writing history
1: in a way, so people who didn't know of Rome but. I can't believe I didn't think of that. That like Cullin probably didn't know of Rome, but the people writing about him certainly did.
0: Although you never know. It depends on when it took place because there's pretty good evidence now that even though the Romans didn't make it into Ireland to make it a colony like Britain, there was trade back and forth and probably Irish went and fought as mercenaries in Britain, maybe even for Roman troops. Who knows? Because they found Roman coins in Ireland and other stuff. But anyways... We were asking about Scotha, the shadowy one, is what her name means. As I said, she's weird because she's a woman warrior, right? The story goes that she can complete Kahalan's training because she's the best warrior anywhere. And where is she? She's over in Alaba, which means Britain or Scotland, or maybe Wales. I don't know if they distinguished across the sea, anyways. So you have to go a special place to this special warrior who's a great hero in herself. And what's more, she's a woman. So that makes your training all the weirder and cooler. And plus, he meets an even cooler one named Aoifex and has a child by her. But meanwhile, he learns all of their tricks, including the one that helps win the war for Ulster at the end of the tale, the guy Bolaga. Can you describe what that is? Nobody knows. The last interesting interpretation I heard, because we're skipping ahead, but in the epic fight with his Cajolin's foster brother, Ferdia, he takes Ferdia down with the guy Bolaga and they're standing in water at the time and it seems to have something to do with catching a spear with your toes and shooting it at or up your enemy. It's not clear.
1: And the other thing that he does is the hero salmon leap. Any idea what that might be?
0: Have you ever seen salmon leaping going upstream? They like leap straight out of the water, right? That's what Cajolin could do. Better than a salmon
1: Salmon don't look particularly cool when they're doing that. I envision him looking cool. Well,
0: I don't know, though. This is the hero who has a complete shapeshift when he goes into battle, when he's filled with rage, right? And if you read the description of that, he doesn't sound cool. He sounds like a gross monster that's made up by animation.
1: Yeah, there's like a Hulk scene. I forgot to mention that. Tell me if I have this right. The Ulster men, because they're all sick, they send out their youth brigade, which is their Boy Scouts or something. Queen Maeve kills all the Boy Scouts. And so Cahollin goes into this rage and turns into this sort of nondescript messy monster and kills a bunch of people. So I thought that that was a little bit like the Hulk.
0: His hair points stand on end and weep blood and his eye sticks out and his eye sinks in and yeah, all this stuff.
1: Oh, we should talk about what a spancil hoop is.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. That's just something you hobble your cattle with put
1: it around two legs and you won't go anywhere. I got the impression that they were leaving these things as challenges.
0: Oh, Helen was. Okay, so here's the deal. So Maeve gets all the other kingdoms and provinces of Ireland to fight for her against one province, Ulster. So they're all heading up to Ulster. Not that this has any implications for modern history. Oh wait, it does. They come to the point that you described, all the men of Ulster are struck down by, it's not just any illness. It's an illness that mimics either a woman's menstrual period or childbirth. Those are the two interpretations, because you know there's a pre-story for that. They're all debilitated for four or five days, and the boy troop has been slaughtered. And so the reason Cahollon isn't down with the mysterious illness is that he wasn't actually born an Ulsterman. He was fostered in Ireland. Maybe his father was the god Lugh. We're not going to talk about that, but he might have been. And he was sort of born three times. But anyway, no wonder he's such a weird monster. So Caholland is not down with the illness, and he's the only one who can defend all of Ulster against all of Ireland. So he sets up a sort of series of hindrances. With little messages carved in oam that say riddly things, and they have to get someone. To call someone in to come and read this. Oh, it's a challenge. So let's go on, and then they go to the next one, and eventually he starts challenging their heroes one on one to delay.
1: I got the impression that it was like a little bit of a game that they sort of all knew the rules to. In modern warfare, right, if someone left a message that said, well, if you can't lift this stone, you can't move your tanks past here. But that's what the challenges were. They were like, you know, you can't pass this point until you do X. But it seemed like this game that they knew the rules to. And there was an allusion to a board game. It's called like Wood Smart or something.
0: They play it in all the stories. It's like chess.
1: So I was thinking that it was a little bit of like a chess game to them, that they could only move in certain ways and they could only.
0: OK, you're talking graduate student level stuff now. All right. A for graduate student interpretation. This Warriors duel is a lot like physical and physical itself. When they play it, the characters are often doing something else at the same time. Like when Fergus and Maeve play it, they're having sort of foreplay. But if Fergus plays chess with Alil, Maeve's husband, it's like contesting over Maeve. In the stories, they always use this game to talk about what's going on in the story in a way or going on behind the scenes. They all know the rules. And it's partly because they're all in a story. War didn't work like this in Ireland or anywhere, as you point out. But it's also because the society runs on the principle of honor. So if you can't keep your honor, nobody likes you. You have to go away and drown yourself or something. You are not a noble person or a hero if you don't have your honor.
1: You mentioned a little bit the modern history of Ireland and how it is sort of foreshadowed by the Tane. One of the ways that I found you was that another book that we were going to do on this podcast was Say Anything, Patrick Redden Keefe, which is sort of a history of the troubles. And so I read this book. As a kid, I knew that the IRA existed, but that was kind of it. I didn't really know what it was all about. And then I started reading back from that, I probably have a somewhat okay understanding of it back to about where your expertise begins, right to where like when the English decided to go over to Ireland and send the planters over, that's like where I start. And that's the end of the period that you're an expert in. So I wondered, I was like, what happened before then? And now here we are. So unfortunately for the listeners, you're not going to know from this podcast what happened after then until we do the Patrick Radden Keefe book. But all this to say that Ulster is the northeastern province, the one closest to Scotland. And it's the one where where all the stuff went down, what they call the Troubles, which is the most British possible way of saying a bloody war with our own people. So has Ulster been a hotbed for this kind of activity for its entire history?
0: No, (laughs) it has not. No, but it is sort of naturally cut off in terms of the landscape. It's sort of ringed by hills that cuts off the rest of Ireland. And there's some sense it was probably a big power. The provincial kings were probably a big power... Before St. Patrick got to Ireland, back in the mists of time, but the other kingdoms gradually encroached on their borders and they became less important during much of Ireland's history. But that's the territory that the English settled so-called first. They brought English people and Dutch people over and put them in Ulster and displaced native Irish people in the 16th, 17th centuries. That's why it's different now. But the reason that this book is, it doesn't foreshadow, but it was taken up, as I said at the beginning, by nationalists, partly because of the recovery of the language and the stories, but also Cahollin was such a hero. His statue is at the general post office, which is where the Easter Rising began. So he's a real symbol. But look, you know, we're not talking about the meat of the story. This is where I bring my students back to what we have to study in the time. And what I always make them do as an exercise is go through and try to chart or network the social relationships in this story. Because that's where I think the point of it lies is in who you're loyal to and whom you're not loyal to, you know. So you mentioned Fergus and Cahullin, for example. They're loyal to each other because Fergus is his foster father. And that should be a sacred bond, except, of course, Caholic kills all his foster brothers in single combat. But reluctantly. Yeah, he's not happy about it. So Fergus loves Caholic. And Fergus is on Maeve's side for a good reason, a pre-tale reason. He doesn't want to be. He wants to be with the Ulsterman, but he's mad at conqueror. So you've got Maven, Alil, king and queen of Connex, but you got Fergus from Ulster fighting for them and sleeping with Maeve, the queen. Then you've got Fergus and Cahalan by a foster tie related together. Then you have all those guys he fights who are Cahalan's foster brothers. You've got Maeve in charge. That's a big deal right there. She's running the show. The army's against Ulsters, not Alil. And that's really weird and strong. And everybody knew there weren't really queens who did that. So that means something that she's running
1: it. What do you think that means?
0: Oh, it means like who wins the war at the end?
1: She gets the bull. And I guess she wins.
0: No, no, because the bull runs off and gets killed. A lot of people on both sides are killed. And the last thing Fergus says to her is it's something about the way of an army that follows Ton Manaw. In Irish, it's an army that follows a piece of ass to get broken and dispersed. If you let a woman lead your army, you are screwed. That's part of it. The other thing that's really big in this tale is being a hero and being a king or queen, right? The one that has to organize and assemble and lead and the one who can do a salmon leap anytime he wants and like take out everybody with the short life. This is a big medieval quandary. It turns up in all kinds of literature.
1: What was the marriage practice in those days, in the medieval days like? It First of all, seems odd for a married couple to be comparing wealth because you'd think the point of a royal marriage is to join your wealth. Also, yeah, there was this like little love triangle with Fergus that seemed to just be kind of fine.
0: Yeah, no, there's lots of adultery in the stories. They're all like just sort of playing around it. And also there was lots of sleeping with people before you get married for men and women. This is in the literature, to Holland and Ever, his wife. And I don't know if you caught it. He says to her when he's courting her, let's stay true to each other while I go off and train with Skaha. And then he sleeps with about six women before he comes back to her.
1: Yeah, and has a kid.
0: As a very precocious kid.
1: Yes. (laughs) So when he goes off, that pre-story is actually after, isn't it? Because isn't he like a 17-year-old when he goes off to study?
0: It's supposedly before the war because he learns all his good tricks.
1: I think the first time maybe you learn his age is when Fergus is telling the story about how he played with some kids and then a druid told him to kill some people and then he did.
0: Exactly. It's sort of like he's a child. He's born and he's a child. Then suddenly he's a man and he doesn't really age. He's just hero age the rest of his life. OK, so this is a cool thing outside the toy. Marriage in Ireland was a contract, even after people became Christian and you're only supposed to have one spouse and you never get divorced and stuff you could get a divorce very easily volumes and volumes of laws from like the eighth ninth 10th centuries a lot of it is on divorce what if you break up the contract for example a contract of equal property what happens when the household breaks up and she gets to take away this and he gets to take away that it's pretty clear that marriages by and large were contracts for forming a household and making babies and making a little economic unit. And that if something bad happened and they didn't want to stay together anymore, they had to take their property apart and go form other economic units. So it's not like you walk into a room and see the love of your life and you get married. It's like daddy says to you, if you're a little girl, they're like four Boys in this village who are going to be appropriate for you, and I'm thinking Flan over there is going to have the most cows by the time he grows up. So you and Flan are going to get married. You're going to have a contract, you know. And unless he does something egregious, in which case you could divorce him, you guys are going to be a little unit. That's a whole list of things you can divorce a husband for. If he's impotent, if his chief wife beats you up and leaves marks, you can divorce him. They had more than one wife, the rich guys. If he beats you and leaves marks on you, you can divorce him. If he goes off on pilgrimage and joins a monastery, you can divorce him. If he sleeps, the quote is, sleeps with the stable boys, i.e. if he's gay, you can divorce him. Nowhere else in Europe could you do this. It's pretty cool. Don't worry, women were oppressed anyway.
1: I assume so, because we just read the only surviving tale is about how you shouldn't follow a woman into war. (laughs)
0: Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) And the end of it, as you know, it ends in a scene with Maeve after the great battle has to crouch down in the ground and do something. We don't know if she's menstruating or pissing or taking a shit or what, because the place is forever after called Maeve's Foul Place. So she's incapacitated at the deciding moment of the end of battle. And that's when Fergus says that thing.
1: Maybe she just got the same thing the Ulsterman Uh had. So part of the problem for me, and I don't know if this is common or maybe this will inform why your undergrads don't understand this stuff, is that jumping into this is like watching the seventh installment of a Marvel movie. I have no idea who any of these people are, so it's so hard to follow everything.
0: It's because of the way they made up tales is like... They're writing the toin, or somebody's thinking up the toy, and you want this hero from this place to join the fight. Except why would he join the fight? Well, we better think of a story for why that guy would come and fight for Babe. So then there's that little story. Why couldn't the Ulsterman fight? Well, we better explain why. Or maybe there was a story about that kind of thing. You want to plug it into the toy.
1: So what I alluded to, I think this was the first one, was that there was a woman who was for some reason forced to give birth on a moving chariot.
0: She was racing a chariot. This is one of these weird sort of almost myth type stories that are attached to this one. There are some characters who seem sort of like maybe once they were divinities and she's sort of a strange, almost godlike figure because she comes out of nowhere and she marries somebody who's not a king, but he's a warrior or a farmer. And he's so proud of her because she's really fast and you're right. She's pregnant, she's ready to give birth and he starts boasting and makes a bet that his wife could outrace a chariot with fast horses. And so he makes her race and she does, but she gives birth at the finish line and curses all the men who made this come about and curses them with, in their most crucial moments, they're going to feel what she's feeling for four days and five nights. And he's like, yeah, dude, you're feeling it for five days when you need to be up and about.
1: So here's a sort of left field question. Do bulls have specific religious significance in Ireland at this time?
0: you for playing. Yes, they seem to. Okay, here's where it gets all sort of dorky, scholarly. We talk about Celts as a sort of people, as people who shared a culture in the Iron Age, maybe earlier. So the people, for example, who were living in what is now France in, say, 400 BCE or 100 CE, we speak of them as Celts, and ditto the people in Britain before the angles and Saxons came. So there's this pan-Celtic culture. You find depictions of bulls related to shrines, or you find bones from feasts. And if you think about it in a functionalist term, Bulls are the ones that make possible your wealth because, you know, you have cows, you have bulls, you get more cows. Bull is a symbol for a strong man. So it's one of the animals that turns up in the literature as potentially magical quite a bit. So people just assume from that that they had something to do with whatever religion we can't find in these places before
1: Christianity. So cows were the main animal out there?
0: That was wealth. You didn't have bank accounts. They didn't have a money. It wasn't a money economy. They didn't have much, by the way, of showy goods, except for gold and silver jewelry that men and women both wore. There was nothing else, no other way, except having control over the cattle and having control over people to show that you were in charge.
1: They give prices in this book by bondmaids. So like something is worth X amount of bondmaids.
0: X amount of women slaves or X amount of cows. That's how you count it up. Yeah.
1: My last Irish history question is, what does Mac mean? Son of?
0: Yeah, son of. The Irish names today, like O'Neill, it means descendants of. So, for example, I, just discovered on Ancestry.com, am descended from Neil Noigilach, the legendary 5th century king of all Ireland. You may bow before me.
1: <laughs> I will not, because if you follow a woman into battle...
0: <laughs> <laughs> then all the cows are mine! Yes. <laughs>
1: Well, thank you so much for talking about the toy. I have two more questions for you. One of them is, can you recommend two books to our listeners? Any two books?
0: There's a really good set of Irish tales translated by a guy named Jeffrey Gantz. Old Irish myths and sagas, if you want to read some more stuff about this. And there is a decent history of Ireland in the early Middle Ages by a guy named Matthew Stout history of early Ireland or something. But you know, go to the tales. I say read the tales. They're so bizarre. Also, I'm busy translating a set of old Irish romances where people go to the other world. So that'll be out in about a year or two. So
1: tell us about the book, The Lady of the Rock Vision of Faith in the California Desert.
0: Okay, there's no Ireland in that. I wanted to know how people had visions in the past. What was it like the process? So I heard of this woman in the Mojave Desert who has one every month. She talks to the Virgin Mary on the 13th of every month around 10 30 in the morning, and people come and watch her see the Virgin, but they can't see the Virgin. So she has this conversation you can hear, and then she tells you what the Virgin said that day. And it's usually pretty much what the Virgin says wherever she appears to people, which is like all the time, all over the place. It's stuff like pray the rosary don't have sex out of wedlock, don't do abortions, world peace is coming, keep the family together, stuff like that.
1: Yeah, boilerplate Virgin Mary stuff.
0: Mary an apparition. But the interesting thing is that a lot of people gather, anywhere from 50 to sometimes, you know, hundreds of people, and they process to where she sees the Virgin, and then the visionary Maria Paula goes around and talks to people and blesses them, and agrees to pray for them, people come and sort of witness for her. Like a guy would say, I had cancer, and I came here and asked her to pray for me, and I went back to my doctor, and I was cured, and he doesn't know why. You know, and I think it's because Maria Paula prayed to the Virgin who asked God to heal me. It's as if the crowd helps her know how to be a visionary, how to behave, and what to do the crowd negotiates to make her the visionary. That's the point of the book. I don't know if she's still doing it. She was doing it for about 25 years. As I watched, I was there for about six years. I don't know. I pretended to be an anthropologist and I learned Spanish and I was like the interviewer
1: person, which for a medievalist is very scary. Yeah. Dealing with live subjects. Yes. They talk back. What got you interested in that?
0: Well, as I said, I wanted to know how people had visions. And one way some historians I admire in the past did that was to go find similar phenomena and learn to ask questions by watching that, learn to ask questions of the past. So now I'm writing a book about weird supernatural things in the early
1: Middle Ages. Dr. Patel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for recommending this interesting, somewhat confounding, but really amazing (laughs) book.
0: It really isn't as bad as Lucas says. It's really fun.
1: It's fantastic, but it was more challenging than I was expecting. But it is not more challenging than like any other old story. So, recommended. The Book Society Podcast. Book Society Pod on Instagram. You can reach me, Lucas Cantor, the host at lucascantormusic.com. And the reason that it's lucascantormusic.com is because I'm actually a musician professionally and a book reader on an amateur level. So my website is really more about my career as a composer. And so if you want to know about that, which is a totally different thing than my career as a podcaster, then go to com, and then you can click on contact us and you'll see my email address and I think my phone number and my agent's phone number. If you want to call my agent, she's super cool. You can call her, but you could also just email me directly. That's probably easier. So Book Society podcast, Lucas Cantor Music. We have new episodes every Friday, edited by Santiago Ramones, who has his own podcast. A podcast called Bit Depth, which is also really good. He also does some of the production, so we are both producing it together. I guess.
0: Saint Patrick supposedly has a duel with druids. One, he raises in the air and lets him fall and bash his brains out. Another one, I forget, he
1: instantaneously combusts or something. This is not what I learned on St. Patrick's Day. Oh, St. Patrick kicks ass. Are you kidding me? It's unbelievable.